Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Blog Talk Radio. Now, let's join Holly Steffi and Red Velvet Media as we explore the inspirational worlds of music, media, and more. Everybody, welcome to Red Velvet Media Blog Talk Radio. This is Holly Steffi, and uh, I have a really special guest with me today. He's been on my show a couple times, and he's a personal friend as well, um, Ed Donovan, who um, is quite an interesting character because he's got a lot of things that he's done in his life, and um, he's going to tell you a little bit about that. But just to let everybody know a little bit, um, Ed Donovan um, has um, served as um, he's a 32-year veteran of the Boston Police Department. Um, he has also produced and directed and appeared in documentaries and talk shows for over 20 years in regards to um, his acting career. But he was the person that created the Boston Police Stress Program, which now has become um, cops Helping Cops, and um, subsequently there has been a book that's written about his life called The Shattered Badge, which we're looking forward to um, it becoming a, a motion picture film. Um, and so if anyone would like to call in, the number is 347-677-1036. The chat room is open and I want to let everyone know that I do have moderation turned on um, because um, I don't appreciate spamming in my chat room. And I also want to let everyone know if they would like to ask any questions, they can go ahead and put any kind of question in the chat room if you're listening. And if you'd like to call in and talk to Ed or myself, the number is 347-677-1036. And it is Friday, the weekend before, the week before, well, the day before, the weekend for Memorial Day, and I want to say happy Memorial Day, and I want to say thank you to everybody that's been of service. Um, this year is really important because of all the great sacrifices of everybody in the armed services and beyond that have done for our country. So, um, you know, make it a safe one. And with that, let's bring Ed into the chat room, or actually into the studio, not into the chat room. And again, um, this again is Red Velvet Media Blog Talk Radio. And if you want to listen to the show in its entirety afterwards, it will be available on Red Velvet Media Blog Talk Radio on demand and also on iTunes as an on-demand episode. So with that, let me bring Ed into the studio. Ed, welcome to the show. Yeah, there glad to hear your voice again. Yeah, hey, listen, before before anything, I want to wish your daughter a happy birthday. Oh, it's thank you very much. I'm sure she'll so, appreciate that, yeah. Yeah. She was my first one. I had seven, and she was the first baby girl, you know. <laughs> you know how daddies awesome. have little girls. <laughs> now I she's know. got children. 
Yeah. I'm like your co- kid too, so I yeah. totally get it. I, I want to correct one thing. You introduced me as the founder of the Boston Police Stress Program. I was the co-founder. There was three of us. Okay. There was Joe Ravino and Gus Gatro. Gus died of cancer and never got to see it go. And Joe and I, we had to fight everybody, including the union, the police administration, all to sell this project to the police department. And it wasn't easy. The uh, police commissioner was new. And the word mm-hmm. stress was out there for grants, so uh, we had people. We couldn't do it. Joe barely graduated from high school. They just about kicked me out of high school, so we didn't know how to write grants. We had professionals write the grant, but it had to have the word stress, and it had to be the Boston Police Stress Program. A lot of people didn't like that. But we did get the grant to Commissioner Grazia, and uh, from that, Joe and I just went everywhere looking for some place to have a place where we could meet and get away from police buildings and a hierarchy and confidential. And we found an abandoned house out in River Street in Mazapan, and Joe and I jumped through empty paint cans out in the street and cleaned up the place. We had a few people help us, and then we bought our own paneling and made the place look have an atmosphere and all. And that's how it really started. It was two police officers, two patrolmen, mm-hmm. members of the Boston Police Patrolmen Association, that uh, fought the system and won. That's the best thing that I can say about how we got started. you got the yeah. gentleman running it now, and they changed the name to Peer Support Unit, and that's fine, and they're still at the same place and still doing a great job. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, this is what I wanted to ask. I wanted you to tell everyone a little bit about your background and how you got into the police department, you worked with the Boston Police, and then how you and your co-founders decided that you needed to create the stress um, program because I remember in one interview when we were talking, you you said to me how awful it was for some of the officers, and including yourself, that would go out, you'd be on a murder scene or, um, you know, something that happened and, you know, that was quite violent and you'd have to see that and then you're... Your lieutenant would turn around, or whoever was there in charge of you guys, turn around and say, "Okay, go back out," without any counseling, without without anything. And I remember you telling me that, and my heart just like was like breaking because I can only imagine how hard that must be for any officer, anybody in law enforcement, anybody, even a human. I mean, walking in and finding someone deceased and or murdered, or um, you know, having to go arrest someone or or, you know, any kind of violent situation. And then I want to get into what's happening today in the world, too, because you and I touched on that, and I think we should talk about that a little bit. Okay. So let's talk about how you got into the police department and um, you're 32 years there, and then what you dealt with, because, I mean, you've done some pretty heavy investigations. I mean, I think we talked about the onion fields last time that we were on the air, too. Um, yes, Joe, uh, Joe Wambo. I just spoke to him a little while ago. Yeah, he's retired. He was a sergeant mm-hmm. detective in the uh, Hollywood division, and uh, he did some writing, and he covered the movie The Onion Field. The book, rather, was turned into a movie. But the big thing that he did is he produced a show called Police Story, and that was mm-hmm. the first ever mo- uh, show, series, that showed that police were human beings, that we had marital problems, we had drinking problems, we had suicide problems. So he's the one that really started this ball rolling in this area through television. I go back to a childhood where I saw 
we had there was no tele, there was no television. Everything was movies. We always went to movies mm-hmm. on Saturdays, and you had the beat cop, and the beat cop knew all of us, and he'd give us a kick in the butt, or he'd tell my mother. My mother would kick the drillers out if we did something wrong. So we feared him, but we loved him. He was always there, present, and there was a police box with would flash blue, and he'd answer the call there. And that later on, we had the same thing when I went on the job. And uh, I never really believed that I would end up being a policeman until I was in the Navy in Key West, Florida, when I was the base photographer, and I photographed police, I mean, uh, sailors who committed suicide and murder. I had a lot of things on the base that were criminal, and I had to deal with it. I worked with the FBI, the local police, and I was only 19 years old, and this was all horrendous to me. You know, I was showing, I was trying not to show fear, something that police don't do. And then I had a, they were making a movie there called The Frogmen with Richard Widmark and Dana Andrews. And the director comes up to me and he says, would you mind putting on an officer's uniform and be in some of the scenes? So I get caught between now. I love that. I'm, my God, this was great. I love the acting. And now I, do I want to become a cop? I don't want to become an actor. Little did I know that many, 40, 50 years later, I would be doing both. <laughs> so when I joined the Navy, I was on the battleship Missouri, and uh, we were up in Nova Scotia when we got the uh, alarm come over, said that three submarines, Russians, were following us, and now we were at war with Korea, and we might get torpedoed. And that was in 1950. So we went ashore, mm-hmm. and I ended up going to Key West, become the photographer. And after I got out of the Navy... I applied for the Boston Police Department, but it wasn't easy to get on it. Believe me, people think it's easy to become a cop in those days. You had to go to school, you had to study, you had to work out, you had to get in condition. Yes, it was mostly Caucasian Irish at those days. This was 1957. And I had to eat a lot of bananas just to get on the job because I was so underweight. (laughs) And, Mm -hmm. you know, once you go through the academy, it was only like a month, and... All of a sudden, they give you a revolver with six bullets, a stick, um, a whistle, and a pair of handcuffs, and then told you to go out in the street and become the whole police department, and you were on your own. But I was very fortunate when I was stationed in West Roxbury because there was a sergeant there by the name of Joe Jordan. He's the only, the first person in history to go from patrolman to become the Boston Police Commissioner. And he oh, took me aside, and he told me some things that I needed to know. And I wondered about this one policeman that I had a ride with who was totally drunk. And I was astonished because I drank, uh, you know, and I hid what I drank. And Joe told me how he was a very stopped, uh, real good policeman in South Boston. But on one occasion, this truck came by trying to run down people, and he didn't know what to do, and he had no way to call. We didn't have one. He took out his barber and fired one shot. Uh. Unfortunate for him, it was a fatal shot. It went right to the little window in the back, and it killed the person instantly. And little did he know, he just killed a 14-year-old boy on a joyride. Oh, no. Yes. No. And he was devastated. He had family, he didn't drink, and all these things. And in those days, you got no help. And I always remembered that when I was at my point of wanting to commit suicide, and I sat in my car with a gun in my mouth. I thought of him. I always thought of him, and I often thought of Joe Jordan, the things he had to tell me to do. And 
I thought, you know, there's a poor guy that killed somebody, and they cleared him. He was tried by all trials, but he was tried by the media. The media crucified him. Cop kills youth. He had to read yeah. all the time in the paper well, about himself. The media is a demon at times. It really yeah, no, can I know, but, but, Ed, but Ed, and, I have to interrupt you here for a minute. I have to say something. I totally hear what you're saying about the fact that 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 part about how the media went and said that. But you know right now in our current situation how the police and some of them are unethical and they're not doing it properly, are terrorizing people for no reason. You know that, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I totally get what you're saying about the the press being pissed off and people, because, I mean, look at what happened. Look at what happened, like, with that guy in, uh, what was it, in Ferguson and a couple other different places, how they... You know, the guy, you know, maybe he was a, did something that was inappropriate and wasn't above board. Um, You know, I don't really know because I wasn't there. But, you know, um, I personally, I mean, my personal thing is if you're, like, going out and you're going to hurt someone else and you have to do whatever you have to do to stop somebody, I don't think it's right to take someone's life. Now, okay, obviously if someone has a gun pointed at you, you know what I mean? Go ahead. I think that that there is like a question you have to have with your own. Holly, there's self no amount of training or anything that can prepare you for circumstances whether you shoot or not shoot. There is no mm-hmm. professor in the world that has to make a split second decision. They don't have any other options. Yeah. They can only do what they think they're doing at the right time. Right then and there. And if they did something wrong and inappropriate, their department is not going to cover up for them. They're going to investigate them. They're either going to, uh, you know, fire them, try, uh, try them for it like that. And then, of course, you've got the community. You've got the law departments. They will investigate it, too. I don't believe mm-hmm. any cop goes to work any time, day or night, that thinks he's going to have to shoot somebody. And certainly it wouldn't be murder, as some of them are being charged with. So it's, yeah. I can't talk about that because I am not walking in their shoes. I can tell you yeah. a few incidents that I was involved with where I had to shoot or not shoot, and it almost cost me my life. That's the scary mm-hmm. thing. If you hesitate, yeah, you can kill that. or let's somebody segue. else can get killed. Yeah, let's segue into that because um, I've, I've like been seeing a lot of police officers lately that aren't above board, and you and I know there are some that aren't. And they are pulling people over. They're profiling people. They're pulling them over. They're hassling them um, to write a ticket. They're arresting people. They're giving excessive force to some people. I mean, again, I'm not there, so I don't really see it. But I want to know, let, let's let's get away from all that because it's kind of like a subject I don't really want to go there right now about. But let's talk about what you personally went through and then um, – you know, what you experienced and what your friends have experienced, and let's talk about that. Because, like I said, I am not there when any of this other stuff is happening, and I surely am not one to say it's okay to go out and kill people. It's not, and it's not okay to use excessive force. So let's go to the let's, – let's just segue into what you did and what you went through. And I'm, I'm not trying to stifle anything here, and I'm sure other things will be brought up and we can segue back into it. But 
right now, it's just like for me, it's just so hard to talk about because I've seen so many unethical things happening to innocent people. And we're not talking just police officers, we're talking about civilians. So, it, works both way, it works both ways, but there are cops that I are know. So when totally we pull over a uh, when you pull out an automobile or go into a domestic dispute, yep. there's no such a thing as a routine call. You've got to yep. take every one of those calls like it's a danger, even exactly. though you're going in to help. When you pull a, a, an automobile over, as uh, one of you the police officers in Boston on March 27th did, John Moniam, he before yeah. he could do anything, the guy shot him right in the face, point blank with the three fifty magazine. The bullet went underneath his eye and out to, in the side of his ear, and he's in a hospital bed today fighting for his life. He stopped horrible. a traffic violation. That's how dangerous That's these horrible. are. That's horrible. It is horrible. Like I had said, a situation exactly. where I was Every a situation is different, right? Every situation is different. Oh, yeah. And, and you're right. And that's it. You just Absolutely don't know. Right. You don't know. Not a doctor or a paramedic or firefighter yep. knows what it's like to have to possibly take a life. They don't Isn't have to that, think about it. They go to work. That, I, was, I was in the busiest section of downtown Boston one day, and I, w- I didn't wear a uniform because I was a detective. And I saw a crowd, and I saw a guy at a window of an automobile. He was black, probably in his 60s. He had clothes in one arm. He had this huge screwdriver. And I asked him, I said, please, I'm a Boston police officer. Would you please stop and put those things down? Instead of that, he dropped the clothes, and he came at me with the screwdriver, a big screwdriver. And then I had to make a decision. Do I shoot him? And I I can't shoot him. There's people all behind him. I might kill some. So right. I was lucky the fact that he came at me. I turned my body, and he stabbed me with the screwdriver, but it came on a sideway, so he tore my shirt and tore skin off my chest. God. It didn't go straight in, or I would have been killed. So I hesitated to kill him, almost killing myself. So I was lucky enough that there was, was a division yeah. close by that came and got him and arrested him, and he had been a, a, a junkie for years, and you know he was stoned on heroin when that all happened, mm-hmm. but I was lucky I went home to my children that night. No, and and you know what? That's the thing. I applaud. I, I this is this is where the fine line comes. You know, we as the as citizens and as as the you know the the normie people out there that aren't involved in law enforcement, but are acutely aware now because of more with the, that's happening in the world, like with ISIS and with everything that's happening and all the gangs and this and that. All right. So we're all really aware of that, and we're becoming, I believe, a little bit more acutely aware, and and some people are becoming a little more paranoid. But, you know, we have to be careful, you know, wherever we go, just because we never know. And they're saying that um, right now that they feel like we're going into the Stone Age because, um, you know, you never know. You could be in a market, and somebody could walk in with a gun and start shooting everybody, and you never know what's going to happen, like what happened in Paris. So the thing is, I get what you're saying, and I'm just trying to say to you that it, that that I know it goes both ways. I totally agree with you on that. I'm not disputing that at all. And I thank God there are people like you and people out there that are really, like, there. And, you know, there's a little feedback. Do you have the radio playing in the background? No. Oh, weird. I hear feedback. Why is it? I don't know. Yeah, Let me interrupt but, you know, something there that really aggravates me. When we get in these situations and it becomes uh-huh. a, a, a cop that shoots a black man, 
Al Sharpton shows up every time, and he incites riots. He makes yeah. the situation worse. Totally get it. Oh, it needs to all be right. You can change the subject on that. I can talk about him for hours. Go no, ahead. no, Go ahead. I totally get that. Yeah. I get that. And, you know, there are people out there, like, for instance, let's say this, when there's a high-profile funeral going on, that Baptist church comes and they start picketing and rioting and start trying to start problems with people that are trying to be laid to rest. I mean, you know, there's always going to be somebody out there, and you know that, and I know that, because we both can think in that way. There's people out there that are shitsters, okay? They they <clears throat> like to stir the shit, and they want to start the problem and, 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 and the, the confusion and create, like, you know, it's like pulling the veil off of um, something, you know, lifting the veil and actually seeing the truth. So I totally get what you're saying, and I know the frustration. And, and on your end, because I'm not in law enforcement, I totally understand, and I have a lot of friends that are, including yourself, that have been and are active. And the fear that goes into that, I mean... I went through a personal situation where I had to, you know, get somebody involved in law enforcement, and the guy just basically was a, a supervisor and went out and visited the person that was I was having the situation with, and basically they were not going to come and bother me anymore. So I totally get that. You know, it's like you have to go out, you either talk to them or you put the fear of God into somebody, whatever. Well, the other However thing that gets it, me, right? though, is they keep blaming us for the ills of society. We have nothing to do with that. You know, we mm-hmm. have, we can't control the unemployment or the jobs or the housing. Right. That's your politicians. And Nixon put it very nicely. He says, we blame politics and the police for the riots in Harlem, Watts, Newark, Detroit, and hundreds of such. Every, they blame everybody but the rioters themselves. They find this as an opportunity to burn down stores, loot places yep. like that. I grew up in poverty. We didn't have jobs. I was on welfare. We didn't yep. cause riots, you know. A lot of poor sections in the country don't go out and do this. It's a certain few areas, and the media blows it way out of proportion. Oh, Ferguson was all the media part. I heard people came in. This is what really upset me. Ferguson was really, I, I don't really know all the ins and outs of that. The only thing I want to comment on is the night when they knew that they were going to loot and do all the bad stuff, all the people from all places in the United States and globally were all flying in that night to create <laughs> yep. havoc, burn down places, cut fire hoses, assault cops, um, assault the media, and then... They're happy. They're, they don't even live there. That's not even their city. And then they get on a plane and a car, and they drive home, and they go home to their family. Absolutely. And, we went through know, that in the like, 60s. We went through that in the 60s. That's what's fucked, okay? Yeah. That's what I call fucked. You know, it's like yep. take responsibility for where you're at. It's like, and, and my whole motto is is this. If I'm going to do something, I always look at how it's going to affect someone else, right? Yeah. So we're here to try to bring some clarity and talk about what you personally have been involved in and how this um, has come to where it is today. And um, what I want to talk about, again, I, I want to go back to the stress department that you guys created and how that got has been implemented and how I applaud every officer that does go out every day and is brave enough to face 
the unknown because to every woman and child that has a father or a husband or a spouse or even a husband that has a wife that's going out, they don't know if they're coming home that night or what's going to happen. So, um, and, and, you know, regardless of whether it's something that they caused or it was something that they maybe got involved in, you know, still, loss of life is not where we're at. We don't want that, right? Right. At all costs. But Yeah, but, you know, it, it was a good thing when I come on the job. We worked six days, ten hours a day, and we didn't yep. get paid good. And, and, and uh, we'd go to court after working all night, and I'll only give you $3 a day. And that was it. So we were treated like a second-class citizen until See, we established the Boston, the Boston Police Patrolman's Association came and fought for our eyes, brought in the union, and got us everything we need. And then when you got in trouble in the shooting, they were there providing an attorney for you. They knew you couldn't handle yourself. But you're dealing with a killing. That Someone has to be there. The stress program was there to help them deal with their emotions whether they took a life or shot an engine, something like that, we realized that something had to be done. It isn't just an AA program or an alcohol program. It was a stress program. Mm -hmm. Now they have a word for it, post-traumatic stress, critical incident stress. We didn't call it anything. We just called it a support group. We got them in there and sit them down with three or four people who have been through it before and let them talk it out and learn to handle it because a lot of officers who kill someone end up themselves killing themselves. The guilt, they can't handle it. Or they leave the job. Or they get divorced. They, they're not handling it properly. They can even die of a heart attack. So they do need a peer support group because a lot of times we will not go to a, a, a police chaplain or a psychiatrist or a psychologist because we don't trust them. We think everything's going to be... Hit handing back into the police chief or commissioner, and we're afraid of that. We live in all those fears. But a program with a peer support group with a good reputation can help overcome that. Believe me, I know what that's like. I've been through yep. it. Well, let's I've sat talk in a police that. car with a gun in my mouth trying to kill myself and couldn't I do hear it about because that. I had children. What caused you to get to that point? I want to hear. We want to know what ca- would cause... I mean, what was going through your head at that time when that went down? Well, it was the 60s, and uh, there was every kind of gay rights, women's liberation, busing. There was everything going on. We'd go to work, uh, whether you're in uniform with a helmet and a stick, or the next day I'd be undercover with a camera photographing, and uh, long hours. And you know, being a lambasted by the media, you couldn't even go home to your families. They keep you in a big... Uh, stadium, ready to go out and riot control. That was going on day and night. We had police officers dying of heart attacks on the scenes. Oh, my God. And I, I was trying to deal with it, too. And, you know, and it was just, you know, I'm, I'm about 25, 26 years old. I'm trying to hide my fears and I go to a doctor. I can't talk to anybody else. He gives me Librium. He gives me Valium. He gives me sleeping pills. So now I'm drinking and I'm taking these things and I'm getting worse by the minute. And I, I just thought all I could think of from then on is, oh, I can't let anybody know I'm feeling this way. I didn't know I was the only one. I didn't know that hundreds of others felt the same way as me. So I sometimes I'd take a whole bottle of pills so I could look like it was accidental. Or I'd go into a dangerous call and wouldn't take my gun out hoping somebody would kill me. And that didn't work, so I just sat in my car a few times 
there was different times. Ones when I just raced my car right out of pole and pulled out at the last minute. Or I sat there thinking I'm going crazy and put the gun in my mouth, but I couldn't pull the trigger. And so I just said to myself, that's it. There was a, a policeman called Joe Kelly. He ran a program that was before our stress program. It was for, now, for people that had a drinking problem. So I called him, and I said, Joe, I need help. I give up. Throw me in a dumpster. Do what you want with me. I surrender. I can't take it anymore. And he put me in a detox. I was only in there about 10 days. He saved my job. The job wanted to fire me. He saved my job. And he saved my life. And I had to go to AA meetings. They took my gun away from me for a whole year. And I went to those programs. And it was then that Joe Ravino and I and Gus got to be good friends. We helped a lot of people for about four or five years. When they come up with the idea from the medical health profession, says, you know, there's, they're giving away grants right now. You could get one called stress. So we thought about it. And the rest is history. We've saved hundreds of marriages, lives, and jobs. And the guys are doing it today, carrying on the program. Yeah, you know, um, that's really sad. I, it makes and me I don't sad have to, to worry about killing myself to today. <laughs> no, I no. know. It just makes me sad that you were there because I know what you are today. And yeah. um, Well, I know how important it is for someone to be there. It was Joe Kelly was there for me. And so when I was training my police counselors, we had volunteers, sometimes as 20 years men with all ranks, and I would say, when anyone calls, you answer that call. You get back to them. Go to their homes. Don't wait for them to come in the office for an appointment. Bang on their doors. They, they haven't got the courage to want to call you. They're frightened. Treat them as little children, scared shitless, and go out and ring their doorbell and say, here, I'm here to help you. I could tell you stories that I don't want to tell you over the phone. No, I know. I've talked to you about some of this stuff. I'm getting a little sad right now just because I, I, I really was sad to hear that, you know, because I remember you told me about what ha- what, yeah, what happened with you. I know you've been through, it's a roller coaster. I think, I think with that kind of position, anybody that has to take an authority position where they're basically, you know, Trying to help people, I think that you have a lot of times people rely on instinct. But tell me, what kind of training goes into this? What do they teach you to do? Well, there's a school of hard knocks, you know, some that you've been through it. But at the same time, you do need some professional skills. When we wrote mm-hmm. the grant, we wrote in that the Boston University would be coming over to the stress program and with as many volunteers as we could and the council of work name gave them all the basic uh, classes on counseling for about two years. And uh, then we had a police psychologist who was not attached to the Boston Police Department. And he would come in and talk about the stuff that they talk about today, post-traumatic stress. And that's how we learned about that. Now, I learned more about the subject of stress because of my mentor, Dr. Hans Salier. He was the foremost authority in the world, and he was out of Montreal. I called him on the phone. He finally answered my call, and I told him what we were doing. He says, come up to my office tomorrow morning at 10 o'clock. I'm going, hello? <laughs> I said, okay, I'll be there. And I said, I don't even have a credit card to buy a plane ticket. But what I did is I borrowed the money. I took the day off, him, and I got on the plane, and the cab driver took me to the wrong place. And I said, oh, my God, I'm going to be late. 
So I finally went, and as his turn, his chair turned around, this big high back with his white coat, he says, Mr. Donovan, you're late. You have 15 minutes. So I started to tell him what we're trying to accomplish with the police stress program. We talked for almost two hours, and he brings mm-hmm. in his associate. He says, listen to this guy. He's me 40 years ago, <laughs> something like that. But, no, he, he, he became a mentor to all of us, and particularly me. I was, he became my surrogate dad, and he adopted me as his surrogate son. But I learned everything I could about how stress affects you physiological and psychologically. You can't separate the two. One affects the other. And then we started teaching this to all the brand-new recruits and to all the in-service police officers on the department, and they were in demand to help the state police set up their program, the MDC to set up their program. Then it was the Los Angeles Union and the San Francisco Union. It just got to be worldwide. We were doing something that nobody had the answer to, and we were successful. So Mm -hmm. I'm I'm just we're just very proud of that. My daughter said to me, she's a nurse. She says, you know, Dad, and this is his birthday. So I'm very proud of the things you did as acting in movies and television. But you know what I'm proud of the most? That you started programs and you saved lives and marriages and jobs, countless that you don't know about all over the countries. And that's what I'm proud about the most. And I thought about it for a minute or two. I said, yeah, thank you. <laughs> I, I don't take credit for anything, you know. <laughs> it's just that I, I just did it. I What I did is I took my obsession for alcoholism and I put an obsession into learning everything I could about stress, how it affects the body and like that. And then I was in demand. Uh, you know, I went on Oprah and Donahue, those, and and I said, you want to see what a cop's job is like? Put a producer and a cameraman in a car and ride around with them for a week or so. Two weeks later, two years later, they started the show Cops. I said, there you go. Somebody took the message. And those are the type of things. And I talked about post-traumatic stress before they had that name. And we were getting letters and people were saying, I saw you on TV. I want to know how we can start one in our program. We have a department chaplain, but nobody goes. And we have a department psychiatrist, but nobody goes. to. So I would say, well, start up a peer support group to go with it. Maybe you'll get them to go to them. You can lead them in that direction. Because, you know, we can't take over the sins of the world and, and become psychologists and shrinks. So we had to, you know, find a way to get around that, and that was a peer support group in conjunction with the professionals, whether they be, if you didn't want to go to the department one, have referrals where they could go and nobody would know what they were there for. That was the important thing is confidentiality. That was the big thing. And it's been very successful. Still is today. They're, they're running the program today under a different name. You know, um, something just flashed up to me from somebody, and um, this goes along with what we were talking about. A Omaha, Omaha police officer, a woman, was just killed in a shootout just hours before going on maternity leave. Yes, yeah, that 29 was in, two years days old. ago. Two days ago. 29 years old. She had put off maternity leave to give birth. Did you know February, what she was doing? And she, she was serving was a, a warrant. Shooting down, shooting, she, she gunned down in a shootout with a fugitive. Yeah, yep. she was serving a warrant. Yeah, that's In other words, she had to go up to the person to do a warrant. They turned around and killed her. Like you said, yeah. she was going on maternity leave. The other thing yeah, that frightens me, too, is... I'm reading about it right now. 
Pardon yeah, me? they're saying, I'm reading about it right now, and my friend said he's afraid it's probably not going to circulate at all. But I'm telling him that we're talking about it on the air right now. Mm-hmm. Um, Another thing that frightens me, right here in Florida, in the city of Eustis, two men, the police department was tipped off. They didn't like the cops, so they were going out and get rocket launchers to shoot rockets and blow up the police department. This was just two days ago. They finally got them and arrested them before they could even get the rocket launchers. Now you're talking about the bikers in Texas. They're talking about different bike gangs coming in to have war with the police in uh, Waco, Texas. That's what I I read that this morning, too. Oh, it's real. It's not imagined. Um, you We're know, not an I army. Mean, We're not equipped to fight. We have to call in the National Guard and everything else. Yeah, it's um, very, very sad what's happening. Um, yeah, I don't know where it's going. I really don't. It's it's frightening. It is. Um, was it this? I mean, it wasn't really at this point um, when you were in the police department actively, because uh, I know you no, do a lot of stuff bad. right the now. The 60s were horrendous. The 60s, like I said, riots, protests, demonstrations, everything else. It was nerve-wracking and bad, but cops wouldn't get killed. More cops were committing suicide because they couldn't handle it than they were being killed. Mm-hmm. So it's today is you don't know. You just don't know. when. Like I said before, there is no routine call, none whatsoever. Just look at yeah. that MIT police cop that was, uh, they were searching for the bomber in Boston, and he went, he barely got out of his police car when he was shot and killed, and he wasn't on the job that long either, you know? Yeah, I know. He, now we, we've, they finally um, sentenced the guy to death, um, the young, one of the brothers. Oh, they shouldn't right? sentence to death. That's what he wants. <laughs> I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. They should put him in solitary confinement for 23 hours a day. That was for the rest of his life. He wants to go to the big guy in the sky and be a hero. No, thank you. Well, I didn't even think of it that way. I wasn't even thinking of it that way at all. Um, well, tell me what Boston and Massachusetts are against capital punishment, uh-huh. but they all voted to kill this guy. Mm-hmm. I think it was all the outrage of having that bombing at the Boston Marathon, and they wanted justice. I don't know where they're going to go with it. I don't know. I want to know what you have heard, because I know that you're still involved a lot with with police and with the people that you've worked with. What are what are they doing to prepare? How is everything changing? How are they preparing people for more of what's going on, like the terroristic threats that are going on more and more in the world right now and stuff like that? Well, I think, what, I think what happens is, is they're doing as much what they can with intelligence, you know. They're taking everything serious. Every call is taken very serious. And if mm-hmm. they get word of something that somebody's going to do something, like this guy I was telling you about, the two guys that were going to get rocket launches and kill the police in that station because they didn't like the way they were treated. And they got to them before they could even go out and get the rocket launch because they had somebody tip them off. So you have to have people that will inform on each other uh, somehow, all the training in the world isn't going to prepare you for this. You don't know what's going to happen. No. We don't know what the if the ISIS is going to come here and attack the threat. They're, they're already, already here, they're going to attack law enforcement. They've already made law enforcement We already, know, we already know. 
Mm. We already know that they're all strategically placed throughout the United States. We oh, know yes, that. absolutely. You know, and that's coming from, um, you know, um, government, you know, besides the police, that's coming from other intelligence people that I've heard from. So we know they're already here, and they've already made it really clear that they're here. And you know what's really sad is... And I'm not going to name. I'm not going to talk about it too much. But they're involved in a lot of very large, industrious businesses that are very popular in our United States, and um, they're letting it happen. And it's just a matter of time for everything to it, happen. Holly, we can't let it. You know, go to work and think it's going to happen. We have to prepare as best we can and go to and do our job. We know the climate the way it is today, but we still mm-hmm. go to work. Uh, every day there's over, almost 800,000 police officers that put on a badge and go to work, knowing they may face dangerous situations, but they go to work anyways. It isn't mm-hmm. just a job. It's like being a minister or a priest. It's a calling. We don't make much money. The hours are terrible. There's not much appreciation, but we do it because we love what we do. You know, I used to love to put the uniform on or... Or uh, go undercover and te- go into dangerous calls, undercover detective work, homicides, uh, risk my life and all because I felt like I, you know, I enjoyed the thrill of it. There's an adrenaline rush, you know. There's mm-hmm. an adrenaline rush when you turn on that blue light and the siren and respond to calls, but you never know at the end of that call are you going to be the victim. And the sad part is, there's over fourteen thousand calls, cops every year that are injured on duty. 50,000 are assaulted, more than that today, and over 300 officers commit suicide every year in the United States alone. And, you know, but you don't think you're going to be one of them. You you just don't think that way. You'd go nuts if you did. You'd go to work Mm -hmm. and treat it like a job. You're coming home to your family. That's what you expect. And you do your job. You do your job to the best of your ability. You're not going to get medals. No. No. No, absolutely. Give you a pay raise. No, I I hear you on that one. I want to say real quick again, this is Red Velvet Media, Blog Talk Radio, and today it's myself, Holly Steffi, and Ed Donovan. We're talking about the police, law enforcement, and also we're going to segue into your acting career and stuff you've done too. But um, I want to to stay focused here on this. Um, I want to talk to you about some of the things besides your really horrific situation that you personally had to face with yourself. Um, what are some of the things that you walked into that you just like just blew your mind um, as you were working on the Boston Police Department? So well, I guess on there's very so many, Holly. There's one that stands out my mind right now in West Barksby. I had to go out to a house and photograph the scene of a man and just blew his brains out. But the thing is, when I went in there, you notice on these scenes of homicides and suicides, the police are all around the outside and inside. All of a sudden, they're not talking. They're all stoic. They might be smoking cigarettes or popping a pill. Death is a very strange thing to have to deal with, you know. But I noticed this one guy, he wasn't a policeman, standing in this room crying. He was up against the wall and shaking. And I put my camera down after I took a bunch of pictures. I walked over and I says, what's wrong with you, guy? He says, that was my brother that just killed himself. He made me watch him. He put he put a gun on me and told me to watch, and he put the gun under his mouth and blew his brains out. And I said, oh, my God. 
So I called the duty sergeant office, come here, will you? And I told him, I said, will you get this guy to a hospital? He needs help. And sure enough, they put him in a car and they took him to the hospital. I assume he got help. But that is peer counseling at its best. Spot something, spot a problem, and take action on it. Don't wait, because he probably would never, never ask for help. He was so sick and sick, but that was horrible. I've been into scenes where a man would probably kill all of his five children, kill his wife, and blow his brains out, and you have to sit there and wait to take the pictures. It's not like television. You don't touch nothing until the medical examiner gets there. The medical examiner tells mm-hmm. you what to do. He tells you what to touch, what to take pictures of. And so you have to sit there, sometimes two hours waiting for the medical examiner. And at the same time, all that anxiety, all that death and dying, whether you know it or not, is being transferred into your own nervous system. You can feel it inside shaking. You try to hold it in. It's like when you respond to a call, siren, lightning, and everything else. And when you're all done, you crash. And your body just collapses inside, and you don't show it. And that's when you don't know what to do. For a lot of us, we just go home and drink more or take more pills. You had to learn that there's a way to come down on that stress. But I've seen guys do it, and they just uh, wasted away their lives. They just wouldn't do it. They wouldn't ask for help. Terrible. Yeah, terrible. that's really that's really really sad. Um, I I know that I know that's really a hard call for people too, and that was really really kind of you because you knew that person needed to uh, You're able to spot trouble, people. That's what a policeman does. He walks into a, a joint, would, would be a barroom. He stands in the corner. He's getting paid to be a bouncer, basically. And you can look around. You can see who the troublemakers are. You spot them. I want to segue to a, an old case a couple of years back on the way the, the department handled it. Mm-hmm. I read it in the paper. I heard it in the news that a police officer got his call that there was something about a gun and a man. He goes to the house, the door is open, there's nobody there. So he says, hello, hello, he's got his gun out and he's looking around. He opens this door, it's dark. All he sees as he looks in is the light coming from a television flashing in his face. Then he sees a pistol being pointed right at him. His instinct is to shoot. But when they turned the lights on, he just killed a five-year-old boy with a toy gun. I called the department. I got through to them. It was a small police department in California. I asked them what they're going to do with this man. This police officer needs help immediately. They said, well, we don't have a program. It's not our problem. He should know what to do with it. They refused to have me help them with this officer. I was furious. I get on TV in a show, and I blasted them out. I don't know what happened to the guy, but I'm sure he quit the job after he was tried and cleared. Naturally, he was cleared because he acted properly. He didn't know he was going to shoot somebody else, whether it be a a 25-year-old or a 5-year-old. But he'll never be the same. He'll never be the same after he killed a 5-year-old boy. No, that's not not right. You know, it was like the movie The Onion Field, Joe Wombo, so well for dead. The guys captured the two of them, the police officers in plain clothes. They stopped the car because they had a broken taillight. So they take the guns away from the cops, and they take them out to the onion field. And they tell them, oh, my God, we're going to get in trouble because of the federal law of kidnapping. 
So they figure, well, they take one cop and they shoot him dead. The other guy runs like a son of a because he didn't give up his gun. He runs like a summit into the field, and they couldn't find him. They were arrested that night or the next day. But the guy that didn't give up his gun, the Los Angeles Police Department, made him stand at roll call week in and week out and tell the officers, never give up your, drunk, your gun, no matter what. And the majority of people say, if somebody had a gun to my head, I'd give it up. But they weren't. He wasn't allowed to do that. He ended up pretty much. I guess he ended up uh, leaving the department. Uh, he ended up cleaning gardens and things like that until he died a few years back. But that's the way they handled it then. They don't do that now. Now they handle it properly. But mm-hmm. their attitude is, you never give up your gun. It was a macho thing. And what did they do? Basically, they slowly killed that police officer who did his job. That's that that aggravates me. That really, really gets to me. And yeah, the Los Angeles Police I Department asked that. me to come out mm-hmm. there uh, a couple of years later and work with them out setting up a peer counseling program to go along with their shrink. And I said, sure. San Francisco did the same thing. I work with them, help them set up their program too. They're not saying that you can't use the department shrink. They're saying you have a choice. Who do you want to talk to? It doesn't matter to us. But I know that really got Joe Wombo really ticked off, too, because, you know, he was doing the right thing. He wrote that book and went to court and everything else to, to the whole thing, right to the day that they were. They, were they, they didn't get the death penalty, but they spent their lives, the rest of their lives in jail. One just died recently, I think, last year, after all these years. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about the acting, sweetheart. Yeah. It's <laughs> so funny. You're going to give me a yeah, couple of minutes um, to talk about my second career. <laughs> I know. Well, you know, I'm so, I'm so, like, involved and in feeling so much about what we just talked about. So uh, it's hard to process everything all at once. It gets me too, Holly. It really does. The there's next. only so I much I can do. Well, I know. Listen, you've been in, you got involved in acting and film, and you are friends and worked a lot with, um, I know you worked on the Thomas Crown Affair. I know you're friends with Jay Leno. I know that you um, know quite a few people. Um, the Shattered Badge, um, I want to talk about that, too, before we go into your acting career. Let's okay. talk about the book real quick, um, real, really, really quick. Tell our listeners a little bit about what the Shattered Badge is. And, by the way, everyone, you can get the Shattered Badge on Amazon and um, I read the book, and it's pretty, it's pretty, pretty spot on with everything. Um, let's talk about that book real quick, and then let's segue into your acting and stuff like that. Okay. And also, in Focus Magazine, and what you've been doing down there in Florida. Okay. Well, the the Shadow Badge came about by a fellow by the name of Bill Kankwit. His father was a police commissioner in Canada, and uh, mm-hmm. he treated him very cold, you know, like very highly any emotions and he had known about that and he had saw me on several television shows you know talk shows like Walter Cronkite you know Tom Brokaw uh, you know 20, 20, 60 minutes I've been on all those shows so he said uh, he called me up and he says you know I'd like to come down and do a little documentary on the police stress program and uh, that would involve you I said okay as long as it isn't all about me he said okay so he came down and he interviewed some of the people in the stress program, the volunteers and myself. He spent time with me and my family, went out and stayed at my home. He was there for about a week and a half. 
said, you know, Eddie, I'm going to change this around. I said, what do you mean? He said, I don't want to do the document. I want to write a book in your life. I says, well, uh, what, you know, you've covered pretty much of that. What else can I do? So he wrote the book, and he got it published. And uh, I don't know what else to say. You know, it's a nice thing to know that somebody took that much interest on it. Bill died only a few years ago. He had ALS. And he said his biggest achievement in his life, he told his wife, his wife told me, was that that he had wrote this book on me. And uh, I thought that was nice. He became, I was the only brother he's ever had. And that was very nice, you know. Um, I don't know what to tell you. The book it starts with my childhood, it, like any, any biography, and walks you through it. Uh, growing up in the Depression and uh, coming into the Navy and then coming on the police department. Mm-hmm. And uh, the the thing with the name of it, we come, we kept, definitely he he get the title, and I agree with him. The shattered badge. That's not to make fun of the badge or shatter. It was to shatter the image that we're macho and we don't have problems. We are macho, but we have problems. Let's shatter that image that we can go out and cry and get help. That was the reason for the name of the book. It became very popular. Oprah Winfrey patted on his show very well right at that. And uh, I don't know what else to tell you about it without, you know, egotistically wanting to be talking about myself, you know? No, I think that I just wanted to touch on it and let everyone know what it was about. And if you would like to get the book, it's available on Amazon. And I um, also, why don't you give out your website real quick? Oh, In Focus Magazine or the Police Stress one? Well, both. You can give out both. Well, Police Stress is on Facebook. It's Ed Donovan Stress Cop, uh, something like that on Facebook. If you Google it, you'll see it. Something like that? No, it's Ed Donovan Stress. I forget. (laughs) You are so I don't even know my own website. So, no. Ed Donovan Boston Police Stress Cop, it's a community, is on Facebook. Yeah, and, and then I have my regular Facebook with family, dogs, and everything else, and regular uh-huh. stuff. That's why I have a lot of police officers, friends all over the country. Yeah. And, again, um, if you missed the beginning of the show, the show will be available afterwards on iTunes and On Demand. And if you want to call in and talk to either myself or Ed, it's 347-677-1036. And um, there's a chat room that's open. If you want to go in there, you can go in there. And um, let's go into, you moved to Florida. When did you move to Florida? Well, it was after I retired, and uh, I didn't like the cold weather, and I wanted to get the hell out of New England. Uh, I had my whole 60-some-odd years living there. Certainly have a career made out of that. Poverty and welfare and depression. I was born in 1931, so uh, the the war, no, there wasn't a war on there, but the war was depression and bootlegging. And Roosevelt hadn't become the president yet, but I grew up in poverty, waiting in long lines to get food and clothing. My father uh, went on the railroad trying to get work for all of us, and then Roosevelt came on and he created jobs, and that was a big thing to happen then. But I was 10 years old when the uh, Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor, and my mother came out screaming, the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor, and I never seen her so frightened in my life. And uh, I remember that fear. And uh, as soon as I could, uh, you know, that that time they they had all these movies, uh, 
uh, John Wayne and the Marine Aircraft Fighter and, and all the gung-ho stuff, the propaganda movies, and I bought into it. I went down when I was 14. I tried to join the Marine Air Corps, and they said, go home, kid, and when you're old enough, come back. But when as soon as I turned 17, I joined the Navy in 1949, and I ended up on the battleship Missouri, and I didn't even think about it. They, they, you know, they surrendered the war ended on the battleship Missouri, and I was proud to be part of that factor. And, you know, how I got into the movie business was because I was in such demand to do conferences around the country to speak on stress that all your major talk shows from here all through Canada and even England and uh, around the world were calling me for interviews all the time. But uh, I've I become frightened to think that why would they want me and what, what am I going to talk about? And, uh, you know, as soon as I get on the shows... Uh, the nerves went away after five minutes, and I could have talked for two hours. I loved it. I, you know, I got hooked on it. It was like a, an adrenaline rush. But I was doing something at the same time. I was carrying a message, and people were doing something with it. So I did that for over 20 years. So I had that background of produ- producing and um, doing short films and documentaries, and I was in a lot of them, too. So when I retired and came to Florida, and... Uh, I found out that I could get an agent by sending out a headshot and sent it out. And they said, well, it would be hard to get an agent at your age. So I said, okay. So I sent out the letter to several agents. And a week later, I had 12 agents. <laughs> they all wanted me. So before you knew it, I was doing small movies and shot subjects and a few other things like that. And then I just loved it. I'm a ham. And uh, there's nothing wrong with it. There's nothing wrong with loving what you're doing, being good at what you're doing. And I took a few acting lessons, just a few. And so I could learn the techniques and things like that, and uh, I love that too. And uh, then I got involved with a woman who had a, a newspaper called the In Focus In Newspaper. It was the entertainment magazine a newspaper in Florida, and mm-hmm. she was having trouble with the uh, person working for her. And I uh, met one guy who was a teacher. I was taking acting lessons with, and he says, "Nobody knows me here, and I've been doing this for years." So. I says, well, let's do a story on you. I took the tape recorder, and I asked him all the questions like you would being a detective, going right from, you know, how'd you get here, blah, 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 blah. So I submitted it to her. And she said, this is excellent. Can you do one a month? So I did that for her for about two or three years. And then she says to me, why don't you become the associated editor, become my partner? So we did for a few years. And then she died, and I took it over. And I says, now... I don't want this. I want to go online. You can reach more people. It's a lot easier. The Internet is the thing today, and that's what we do today. And because of the Internet, I get people reading and writing all about the industry from England and uh, India and Australia. And mm-hmm. I've been able to interview people all over the country, biggest names in chauvinists, Arnold Schwarzenegger, Joe, uh, what do you call it, Joe Wambaugh. Uh, mm-hmm. The amazing thing is, when I was doing conferences, I always taught people to be good to somebody because you'll never know how who they're going to be someday. So I was doing mm-hmm. one in Delaware for a couple of days, and the guy doing his workshop in the door next to me and I doing mine would take a break and we'd come outside and we'd talk together and gab. And He was a senator. And then we exchanged Christmas cards for about eight years until I moved to Florida and lost touch with him. Well, today he's the vice president of the United States. I'll never forget that. I tell people to be nice to people. You'll never know who they're going to be. <laughs> so, 
and I got his picture of him and I together in Delaware back in 87 or whatever it was, sitting in my mm-hmm. office in my room, the two of us together. So you don't know. You've got to try to be nice to as many people as you can. Uh, I have a friend that I developed a good relationship with. He's a writer, producer, and director of independent movies. He's had me in four or five of them. He, he had me in the last one where I was a killer. I was an old Italian hitman who's retired. I had to learn the Italian dialect, kill him, whack him, do what you got to do, whack him, that kind of stuff. And I had fun doing it, playing a killer. And he's got a couple of more movies he's doing now, and uh, I'm going to have to go to Georgia with when, when I go up there when I'm ready. And I'm not slowing down. I just asked Joe Wamba, are you doing anything? He said, I don't have the energy you have. <laughs> I thought that was funny, too. I think if you lose that energy and you slow down, I think that's the end of you. you got to, you, you know, Dr. Sade taught me to retire and do nothing is a sentence of death. You have to have a reason to get out of bed in the morning. And this is good. I, I enjoy what I do. There's not, not a lot of money in it, but I don't fish and I don't golf. And that's what you do in Florida. So I'm doing the acting. I'm doing the writing. I'm interviewing people. And I'm having fun at it. What else can yeah, I tell you? Know. Let's talk about some of the things that you've done because you've been involved in some movies that were pretty, pretty fun, actually. Yeah, well, when when uh, uh, Steve McQueen was in Boston and he was doing the Thomas Crown Affair, which he shot ninety percent of it there and some in the Cape, and I was with him one uh, about two days, it's like a bodyguard, you know, to make sure everything's right in plain clothes. And he don't talk to people. He's not very friendly. He's very suspicious of everybody. He don't want nobody. If you were foot taller than him, you couldn't be in his movie. That's the way he was. But for some reason, he took to me, and he came over to me, he asked me about wearing a suit every day. Because he's like that. I'm putting a Thomas Crown suit. He had to wear him. So I said, yeah. I says, uh, you're no, getting I muffled, into my Ed. Own when I get out of here. Ed, you're like a little that. muffled. Yeah. You got muffled. You got muffled for a second. There you go. <laughs> you're fine. I thought I was you losing you there for a second. No, I can hear you okay. There you oh, go. Oh, okay. So we t- we got a picture taken of the two of us together, and we were at identical height, and we kind of resembled each other. And everybody said that. It looks like, not like to be your brother. But the director says to me, look, the guy that's standing in for him is out sick today. Would you mind standing in him for him today? I said, no. And he was friendly. He was talking to me, and we got along good, which he doesn't do with most people. And I did that for a couple of days. And uh, what can I tell you? He was a nice guy. Mm-hmm. He wasn't. He wasn't a actor's actor's, but he had that image. He was a star. He had that star image, you know. Like if you see him in a lot of his movies, he's very good at it, you know. So that was fun. I had others like Charlize Theron. Uh, they said she's going to make the movie Monster on Eileen Warnos, who was the female killer that picked up hitchhikers in in Florida and killed them, shot them for their money. And when I heard she was going to be the movie. For that, I said, it's impossible. She's too she's too beautiful to play a person as wretched-looking as that. Little did I know that I would be playing one of the police guards, cops, at the end of the movie that took her out to be executed. And when I met her, I spent the I afternoon with her. She didn't talk clip. to anybody. That's funny, yeah. She didn't talk I to anybody. It. it was in character the whole time. But I looked at her and I said, my God, what happened to this beautiful woman? Well, she put on 35 pounds. They put mm-hmm. prosthesis on her teeth to make her mouth puffed up, special dental things, and they did mm-hmm. a lot to her makeup and her hair. She actually looked the part. 
And the best part is she acted the part. She won every award across the world. Berlin Film Festival, the Golden Globes. And I'm sitting in my house by myself watching her. And then she, when she watched the when she won the Oscar, I screamed. I jumped out of my chair, and I started to cry. I was joyful for her, and I was happy that I was in the movie with her. <laughs> if you know what I mean. It's just nice to have been in an Oscar movie, you know, with a short career. But uh, That's crazy. No, it was good. good. And I've done a lot of other things, too, besides that. But most of them are independent tell me about your, movies. Tell me about your um, Jay Leno relationship. I know that you... No, Jay Leno. Well, Jay was in, uh, from north of Andover, from Boston. Mm-hmm. And I remember seeing Jay when he was like 19 and 20, because my son's been a comedian for 30 years, too. Mm-hmm. But uh, Jay was like five years ahead of him. And Steve Wright came after my son, and they were friends, too. But Jay, I'd seen him in what we call dives. They're little, you know, buckets of blood. They don't pay attention mm-hmm. to comedians, but you got to keep going on with the show. And he did, he did all that for years. And... Uh, he worked his way out of that. And then he moved to California, went to the comedy store, and I know a lot about him. So when I saw he was coming to Florida to do it, because he does about um, close to 200 shows a year, even right now, because that's where he makes all his money. He puts the money from the Today Show into his bank account. But anyways, I sent him a letter because I knew his address. Because one time when I was out in Florida, I drove by his house and I wrote down his address off his mailbox. So I sent him a letter. I said, Jay, I see you're coming into uh, Florida to do a show. I wonder if there's any chance I can get the interview. I just got through doing Arnold Schwarzenegger and a few others like that. And uh, and I told him how I knew him from being young and all this. And I don't hear from him. But one afternoon, my phone rings, and I pick up the phone. I said, hello, and he's hi. He said, Dunham Young. He said, this is Jay Leno. I said, yeah, sure, you're Jay Leno. He said, no, I am Jay Leno. Did, didn't, you call, didn't you send me a letter that you're coming here? I said, oh, okay, you said that, oh, yeah. He says, well, look, they, they don't want me doing any interviews now because I'm changing the hours of my show. He said, but if you can meet me in Vegas I'm, when I do my shows on Friday night, yeah, you can go see the show and you can come in my dressing room and record me, and I'll do the interview. But just don't tell anybody until you pre- release it. So I made it a, a vacation. I went out to Vegas. I met him. He came in his room with jeans. I sat down. He takes my tape recorder out of my hand and keeps walking all around the place, changing stuff, getting ready for a show, and he's answering all my questions. He says, yeah, I know you. You're a Boston cop. Yeah, of course you drink. I don't drink. I don't do those things, but I do, and I understand why you do it. He says, he says, but I'm just not into that stuff. And, you know, he was just so good. I mean, I don't know how you can talk. I've interviewed uh, Ruby D and Julie Harris, all the big names, you know, and I, it was so good with even all of those older people and stars. But Jay was probably one of the him, and I'd say Arnold Schwarzenegger was really fantastic, too. And uh, I don't know, I can go on and on about the people that I've interviewed. And uh, I have a whole list of them that probably goes for like two or three months if I had to put them all together, who I've interviewed. And many more I'm going to interview. I have a good reputation that when I ask if I could interview them, I don't get a. I know how to go through to the agent, and uh, so on. Like with John Wayne, he was in Boston. He's having his heart operator on, and I got through the the woman who escorted him was his secretary. Her and I talked. I said I have a magazine called Police Stress Magazine, 
And I know that he was, you know, alcohol has been married to a Catholic woman, and I'd really like to talk about the image that he has. That it's it's a put on show that he really is frightened. He's afraid of women. She said, "Oh, I know he'd like to do that because other people wanted to do with him, but and he's not into Clint Eastwood and this and that." He says, "But I'll get back to you." She got back to me. He says, "Yes, he'll do the interview." But, uh, you know, this and that, but you have to do with this and that. And we set up a time, and I went out there, and he was in the hospital, so I couldn't do the interview. So I come home again, and I got a letter signed by John Wayne saying he's doing the Perry Como show, and he's on his last leg. He don't know how long he's going to be on this earth, but uh, I'll have to, we'll have to work with it after the Perry Como show. So I've got that letter with his signature in my frame in my office, and I says to Patty, I says, is, did he really sign this? She says, oh, yes. His attitude is everybody wants a picture of him or his autograph. He says they deserve it. Every time they buy a movie ticket and they go to the movie, they pay my salary. And Ernie Borgnine told me he does the same thing. Whoever wants one, he does it too. Ernie was a great one. He talked for like two to three hours. It was unbelievably friendly. But, you know, I enjoyed that. It was you know, I, I don't get impressed with movie stars. I really don't, because uh, they're no different than you and I. They have to put their pants on one leg at a time like everybody else, and some of them uh, have their own problems. And Ernie just died a couple of years ago. I shed some tears with him because I've interviewed him two or three times when he was here, and he, he was very good about doing it. It was no hassle about, no, we can't do it, and this and that, you know. I don't know. I just... Uh, just have fun doing it, you know. I'm 83 years old now. I'm not getting any younger. You know, when you get to my be my age, you have doctor's appointments all the time, but you keep going. But it's like when I get the call to go to Georgia for the two movies you've got lined up for me. Well, one, I'm going to play a police captain with a pipe. The other one, I'm going to play uh, a veterans administration hospital uh, thing or something like that. I've already seen the script, and I know the lines I have. I think memorizing lines is a hard thing for all of us. Like Jimmy Stewart the other day in one of his interviews, I was reading about him, said that was the hardest thing in the world, uh, doing lines. In fact, when Jimmy Stewart talked like that, and he, go, he was doing that because he was forgetting his lines. <laughs> I thought that was so funny. I didn't realize that. He was good. What else do you want to talk Tell about? Me what, current, what are you currently working on right now? Oh, I put out the magazine uh, once a month, so I have to go do the interviews, and I have to put down all the people that submit their articles to me, and I have to edit them, make sure they look good, and and post them. And then I'm working on those two movies I was telling you about, and I just don't know when we'll be shooting them. And uh, I got a new puppy. I got a Weimaraner. He's 10 months old, 10 weeks old, and uh, he keeps me company all day long because I put my other dog down two months ago, and I haven't got over that. I, when I talk about him, I begin crying, because he was my shadow. For, I had him for 14 years, and I've got pictures of him all over my office and videos of him, and I, I, I just don't forget someone. The dog, to me, is probably the best friend you'll ever have in your life. They give you unconditional love. Absolutely. Yeah, unconditional love. I wonder how many people know what unconditional love is. Most people don't have it. Even in marriages, relationships, there's always a condition on the love. You give me this and I'll give you that. A dog mm-hmm. a dog just gives you unconditional love. It's the sweetest thing in the world. Oh. So you, you recently lost your dog, Duke. I know that. And you replaced oh, God, it. that was awful. That was you got a new dog. Horrible. Yeah. That was horrible. 
He kept looking at me all night long. He looked at that and looked at me to make sure I was there with him. And then we took him in at the vets and put him on the counter, which he always fought. This time he just laid down, and he closed his eyes before they even gave him the needle. And he'd open his eyes and look, and then he'd close them. Then when they gave him the needle, his eyes closed, and he was gone. Oh, my God, I lost it. Yeah, I know. I can imagine. Um, I know I went through that with you. I remember talking yeah. to you when that happened. Um, you know, what what do you bring from your past now? How has how has working with the Boston Police Department and also creating the stress situation stress stress um, department for the police department and also then also doing a book and acting how has that affected your life now today it made me very proud of the fact that i was in the navy and Mm -hmm. served my country it made me very proud of boston it made me very proud of being part of a boston police officer and a member of the boston police patrolman's association and I've gotten commendations from every department. Everywhere I go, I get plaques and commendation for the work I do. That What I get from a lot of uh, police departments is, you're the voice of America for us law enforcement. You say the things that we can't say, that if we did say it, we'd be either disciplined or reprimanded or demoted, these type of things. And it makes me feel good. I remember one time I was in New Jersey. There was over 2,000 representatives from unions from all through New Jersey and New York in the audience, and they would listen to some politician give a lecture on new policies that they had to learn, and I'm in the back listening to them. Then they introduce me, which is embarrassing because they'll talk about, I'm the member of this board, or I'm on the board of directors of the American Law Enforcement Association, like that. And I, um, and I usually yell, yeah, that's enough, I'm here. You know, I, I, don't, I don't feel good with that stuff. But I got up on the stage and looked at that massive audience. I'm always nervous at first. But then once I go, I speak from the gut. I don't have any papers with me or nothing. And I spoke for one hour straight talking about what it's like to be out there, listen to this guy tell these laws that you'll never remember, and you're going to get in trouble if you don't, and the thought of committing suicide and your brother's office is getting shot and killed. You know, all the stuff about stress, how it affects you, both physiological and psychological. And then I wrapped it up, and I said, thank you. And they stood in that audience. I always remember this one. It's happened before, but this was a rather large one. They stood applauding me from the stage all the way to the side to the back of the auditorium. Never stopped. I never got an, a, a thing like that in my life, and I got goosebumps with it. <laughs> it Salje told me it's okay to do that. He calls it altruistic ego. It means feeling good about doing good. You're helping mm-hmm. people. You're, you're, I've had people call me and say, I saw you on TV. I've had thoughts about committing suicide. And I figured if you can do it and go ahead and do it, then I'm going to do it. And then I set up a program, too. I've had a lot of those through the years. I had one about two or three months ago that he sent me a book. And he wrote a book. He was a DEA undercover agent. He had to kill someone, and he was shot. And he retired. And he said he had came to the program one day for help. And I helped him, and Joe helped him, the two of us. He had seen Joe one day, seen me another day. He said, you help me stay on the job and get a retirement. 
And he autographed the book and said it to me, and I have it. It says, Ed, without you and the Strikes program, I wouldn't be alive today to write this book. I says, wow. I got that in the mail about three or four months ago. It makes me feel good. It makes my life worthwhile. It makes my life worth something, if you know what I mean. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yep. Absolutely. Yep. Even through uh, Charlize Theron, watching her get the Oscar. I didn't get it. She got it, but I had goosebumps. I was cheering for her. <laughs> it made me feel good. I had my daughter call. I guess that was my phone. My daughter called I me didn't... in California one day. She was watching the Good Morning America show or something like that. She's, Dad, you're on television. Uh-huh. What do you mean I'm on television? She's Charlize Theron is here, and she's talking about Monster, and they're showing the clip of you taking her out. I said, oh, that's nice. <laughs> I thought that was good, free PR. <laughs> uh, but, no, you know, that's, that's like kind of fun for you, you know. So how active are you with your police buddies? I know you guys talk oh, a lot. Oh, most of them are very good. I, I have so many on Facebook, and some of them have seen my demonstration reel, and I didn't send it out. Somebody else did send it out. I wouldn't do it because it looks like, oh, I'm promoting myself and egotistical and stuff, and I'm a little shy about doing that. I don't have to people do it for me. But anyways, when I went on it today and I saw four or five retired cops saying, awesome, Eddie, go for it. You should get it. I'm going, oh, that's nice. I'm getting feedback from guys I work with. And then, of course, we get a magazine I get today. We get it once a month. It's the Boston Police Patrolman's Association magazine. In the back two pages, it shows you everybody that died recently in the last month or two. And I look at it and say, oh, my God, I knew this guy. I knew that guy. Oh, he came to the stress program. Oh, that guy came to the stress Oh, I helped this guy. Oh, my God, he was great. Uh, he sent people here and things like that. And then I get kind of choked up because I knew them in there dying, you know, most of them are older, elderly. And, and I says, one day my picture's going to be in there. But I ain't ready, baby. You ain't got me yet. <laughs> yeah. Aww. Yeah, I'll be on there someday, you know. I told That's my wife, funny. you come home from work and you find me in the chair or in the bed dead. Remember one thing. I don't know I'm dead. I've had a good life <laughs> now. I mean, I grew up I in the depression, poverty, poor, you, you know. And stuff. I made it. I made something of mm-hmm. my life. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's the important part, and I know that um, you are working on. What are you working on, like that you're that with the police department? Because I know that you said you were working on some projects right now. Well, a lot of people will call me and write to me now that they know how to get ahead of me on Google. I'm all over the place. And they want to know about how do you go about setting up a program and all that. Now, I'm not a consultant, and I, but I basically am, and I don't get paid for it. I don't charge anybody, but they want to know information like that. And uh, they'll say they call boss, and they couldn't get a hold of me. I say, no, I'm retired because they 23 years, you know. you got a guy there running the program now. Talk to him. And uh, you know, I don't know what they do. I don't even know if they have the meetings at nighttime. We used to have a meeting for stress. We had a meeting for alcohol. We had a wife support group. We had the shooting groups they call out. So uh, I was told when you retire, no matter what your job is, never go back. Never go back because it will never be the same. And that is true. That is true. You go back and everything changes. In fact, the police department that I was on, police headquarters where I worked, night and day going out in homicides, they don't exist. They they built a brand new one miles away from it. So I wouldn't even know where that was located. I want to go see it. I have my memories. My memories keep me going. I have Mm -hmm. pictures and plaques. I have pictures and plaques that were given to me by different organizations, narcotics, all over my walls in my two two big rooms. And I can look at them. I have plenty of plaques I can't put up because they're in boxes. 
for it, Nikki. You know, I wanted to ask you, um, you had said that you had worked on a couple films. Um, like, let's talk about the Thomas Crown Affair. Um, tell me about that, working on that. I think we that. covered that, didn't we? Well, we talked a little bit about it, but you didn't really go into all of it. Um, you worked, Well, because you worked they don't shoot it. I was only in one, one place they shot for a couple of days. Mm-hmm. Then they go someplace else. They go down the Cape. They go all over. The, and they shoot some scenes in Hollywood, too. So I was only on the set for two days. And basically, mm-hmm. uh, Steve and I got to know each other. And I now I know his wife, his last wife, yep. and all of his Barbie. friends. And They wrote books yeah. on his wife, and they included me in the books, too. And uh, the name is Marshall Terrell, T-E-R-R-I-L-L. Marshall Terrell, yeah, Marshall. Yeah, you know him. You know him very well. He wrote a couple of really good books with Bobby McQueen, his last one like that. He even put a whole page in there with a picture of me with Steve, and he says, uh, McQueen for the day. Yeah, Donovan, McQueen for the day instead of Queen for a day. That's awesome. Yeah, he's a great writer. Awesome. He's got some really good books. Really Marshall's good. really great. He's my go-to guy whenever I get somebody that calls me or I have anyone that I think that he might want to write a book on. Okay. Um, we yeah. do that. Yeah, I've, I've been able to do He's a very good writer. That. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And Rick Lamont, too. Rick Lamont is the producer, writer, director of the several movies, and uh, that's the one I'm going to be a couple of more in Georgia. And we became good friends. I don't. We don't talk that much, but when we talk, it's usually about the script and the part that I'm going to play. And when I did the uh, shooting the scene on, uh, uh, I played the part of the retired Italian hitman, and they all think I'm crazy because I don't answer the question. They want to know how do you kill your best friend because I don't want to kill him. So I, you know, my my lines. I remember my my lines. I went over them and over them when I was going, going shopping and going here and going there at home on a tape recorder, till I had them mm-hmm. down perfect. Now the thing is, I had to do the dialect. You know, the Brooklyn, New York, New York kind of like a Jewish accent. You know, Italian mm-hmm. like the Sopranos. So I got mm-hmm. Jenny's a teacher, the teacher's dialect here. So I went over to the house and. We went over the lines, and she told me where I had to drop my Boston accent with the odds on the end and stuff like that. So when it came day and we set up the set on the in Florida here, he mm-hmm. started the whole movie with the scene that I was in, the big scene. There was two, two big scenes. So uh, what had happened was I was ready. I was prepared, and that's the key thing, prepared. So when we mm-hmm. got all fit up, the lights were all on me, and the cameras were right in my face and all like that. And they said, action. And the four guys were talking to me, each one taking a turn, yelling at me like that. And I'm going back at them, back and forth. We went through about a 12 to 15-minute scene. And they had to do it three or four times, and they did it right every single time. So Rick comes over to me, the director, and they says, Rick, what do you want me to do? You want me to change? He says, don't change a friggin' thing. That was perfect. Keep it that way. And he says, at the mm-hmm. end, he's at the end, look at Pretend like you're catching a fish. You're fishing. The fishing line's there. Grab it. So I said, okay, so I got to like that. So they're all talking That's me, awesome. driving me nuts. So I said, wait a minute, I got to go. I got a fish here. Only I said, I got a friggin' fish, effing fish. And they all You're said, this funny. guy's crazy. So when they walked away, I gave them the finger. It's up the U.S. <laughs> up the U.S. Uh, <laughs> and it added humor to a very volatile situation. They uh-huh. want to know how to kill this guy. And I added the humor to it. And I was angry because they put me out the pastures. They wouldn't let me kill the guy. 
They came just huh? for information. Now, the, the the irony of it is they can't uh-huh. do it. Nobody can do it. And if they That's don't kill funny. them, they're going to get killed. I just whack them. If you don't whack them, they're going to whack you. Who kills them in the yeah. end when the movie ends? Me. <laughs> when are the lights go up, I'm a killer. Are you getting ready to work on any other films? Are there any other films coming up that you might be partaking in? Well, the two I told you about, but, uh, I, you know, I've got the scripts, and I'm I'm doing my own thing on them, but he, he can't do start shooting it until he gets the money. He's got thinks he's got the money one one. Mm-hmm. He's got three and all, and I'm in all three. So he says, but you'll have to come up to Georgia. We're going to shoot it here. Said, because they get more money, you get the incentive money they won't give in Florida. So said, that's fine. I'll be there. Don't worry about it. Oh, that's but, awesome. Uh, I'm 83 years old, and he wants me in his movie. Of course I'm going to be in him. Well, you know, I mean, you are an icon. You've got all this really amazing stuff. And, again, um, we've been speaking with Ed Donovan, and we went from um, him talking about his police career and then into becoming part of the um, Creative Stress Program with other co-founders. You made me think of co-founders. something. Pardon me? With all this racial stuff that's going on, you know what I thought of when you said that a little bit of I grew up in a Catholic, white, Caucasian society. Mm-hmm. I joined the Navy. I go to boot camp in uh, Illinois. There's mm-hmm. three black guys in the camp with me I had to live with, eat and sleep and drink with, around with everybody else. I didn't see them any different than anybody else. We were all and we should and and we shouldn't exactly. No, and. And no. what what got me mad is they were discriminated then before Harry Truman. The, the that next hurts. Year. Yeah, it hurts but me a lot. They when couldn't I see go that. and go even take a course in anything. And one of the guys it was like a genius, and I felt mm-hmm. bad for him. And then one of the guys went over the fence to get married while we were in boot camp, but he was oh. getting punishment for something. So I said, "That's all right. Go get married and come back tonight. I'll be here. I'll do your punishment." So the punishment was you take your rifle, which is a Springfield rifle, which is a very heavy one, and you got to do punishment, push-ups and pressure. So whenever they called out his name, Brown, I go, yo, I'm here, yo. They didn't see me. So I was seeing <laughs> a black guy doing his punishment while he was uh, outside getting married. <laughs> I like that story because you know, it's so, it's so true. Thing, it's so true. That's the, that's the part that I really don't think I would have really been able to go through in my if if I had lived during the time, and I know it's still going on where they discriminate, um, they're discriminating not only even with just different um, and other cultures and nationalities and stuff like that, but also with your um, you know choice of what your lifestyle is. So what I want to say about that is I think that we're, we should all be free to be what we are, and as long as what we're doing isn't hurting someone else, I think that that is the most important thing. And I do this every day in my life when I'm about ready to do anything. If it's even if it's like to go out and get something to eat or whatever, I or 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 go and meet with someone or talk with them. I always think to myself, what I'm going to do, how is it going to affect anyone else in my life? Oh, absolutely. You know. And if I feel that it's going to affect anyone in a negative way or they're going to have a little bit of a backlash for it on it, I really, you know, I don't do it. That's called integrity. Holly, did you see the gangs of New York? Yes, I did. 
Mm-hmm. Well, look at the discrimination of the so, Irish. They were treated, the Irish yeah. were treated worse than anybody. Horrible. They were treated yeah. worse than the Native Americans. In Boston, all your stores had signs in the window. I even have one today. The sign says Nina, and it means for jobs. When you want to go in there, it says no Irish need apply. In other words, we're not going to hire you. Are you kidding? No, that was back in the, uh, the late ni- 1800s, the early 1900s. They wouldn't hire the Irish. Well. But they looked at us like they do illiterates. We're going to get disease. You remember how when the Nazis treated the Jews and they said they were Ugh, terrible people, they get diseased? Yeah. Well, mm-hmm. they did the same thing with the Irish. Same thing with the Irish in, in the United States. That's very sad. Yeah. But, you know, There's this, a whole is, my, this is my... This is my expression to everything: is karma has no expiration date. So let me tell you, let me you tell know. you something else about the Irish. Nobody uh-huh. would hire the Irish, so they took a job that nobody else wanted, and that job mm-hmm. was police. Nobody wanted to be a cop, mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. all over the country, the Irish were becoming policemen, and eventually they were becoming captains. And, and they were in, you know, when you were a captain and police chief. The politicians want you to do their job and help them. So up the ladder, the Irish grew into policemen. That's why you have the old Irish cop in the movies when the years gone by, stealing the apple off the wagon and things like that. But uh, it was years, even in Boston, before they even had a female cop and, or a black cop. They had a black cop back in the 1800s. Uh, we have actual photos of that. But most of the policemen were Irish Caucasian. And that has changed today. It's very diversified now, very diversified. As it should be. You know, um, it just really hurts me to know that they're hurting people, humans. Well, we had the, uh, the, in the Boston police, we had to go out on all these marches on Selma that was in Boston. You had demonstrations and protests. You had Malcolm X was here. I saw him. Martin Luther King was here. I saw him. They were all here doing all these uh, demonstration and speeches. You know, he didn't say I had a dream, but he said other things. But we lived that because they were doing the protests and the police were called out to handle the, the crowds and the riots. And, you know, we didn't, you know, we 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 don't know what to do. We're, we This is all new to us, too, you know, this racism and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, you know, this is this is a thing for me. I have worked with some made, some amazing people throughout my life. Um, just, you know, my short life that it's been so far. I mean, you know, um, I've worked with people that are all different nationalities, all different cultures, all different colors, sizes, whatever. It doesn't really matter. I, I, I feel like all colors bleed into one anyway. Yeah, nothing, I'm the same way today. Yeah, I wasn't so the one thing time for now. me is... I have I have learned so much from other cultures and from other people, and I'm going to tell you, um, you know, if you don't let yourself experience some of the other things that come that we may not ever get to experience. I mean, I love I loved going to Louisiana and learning all about the culture there, and I loved going to the Bayou, and I loved going to the different areas and. Um, in Europe and learning about the different culture and learning about Judaism and learning about Buddhism and learning about, you know, all the different religions and everything. And and that's just what makes me 
be able to choose what I feel comfortable with. So for me, I'm an open heart. I don't judge anyone by anything. So that's that's the thing that I really think it's important. And I think that, you know, for the police officers that are out there on the street, um, as you said, they never know what they're walking into. And, um, you know, I think it's scary. It's really scary today. It is really scary today. So I don't know. What advice do you have to anyone out there right now with everything the way it is right now? One of the cop shows, be careful out there for the cops themselves. Never mind the public. Because Mm -hmm. Holly, look at the policemen in New York and other cities in town in the last six months. They, will, they just come up to them and shot them right in the car while they sat there, and they never even had a chance to get out of the I car. I know, that really sucks. Because you're wearing the badge and you're in the uniform, which most nations, most are blue. You, They call it target blue. They're there, they want to kill you. They, It's murder, out-and-out out murder, and it's scary. I mean, you don't want police officers today to be afraid to do their job and reluctant uh, at their duties because they're afraid of getting killed. Uh, I would think, well, today I would be more a little nervous and apprehensive about where, where I looked over my shoulder if I was a police officer. Today, someone coming up to my car, I'd be scared stiff. Like, not scared stiff, but I would think twice. Uh, are they going to ask me a question? Or are they going to try to shoot me? Because they're executing Yeah, no, no, no. Well, let me tell you what's happening. With, yeah, let me tell you what's happening out here in California is there are a lot of rogue um, officers out there people that are pretending to be officers and they're oh, pulling yeah. people over and so we have this new thing where you press something on your phone and you can get connected to dispatch and you can let them know that where you are and is there a police officer in that area pursuing you and they can That's let you know. That's a good idea. Yeah. That, that is happening. Um, also, Shame that it has you know, to, but it's a good idea. Well, it's really sad, yeah. And um, another thing that's happening is you know, just being aware and um, knowing. And, and, you know, when you're in a small town, you pretty much know who the officers are unless they're outside, um, like CHP or something like that. But your local police department, you pretty much know, you know, who's who, what's where they are and, and who what's happening. But, um, you know, I always say to everyone, just be really careful, be really cautious, Um you know, like I said, if you're being followed and somebody puts a blue light on you and wants to pull you over, um, you know, always call that number on your phone or, or ask to see an ID if they come to the window. And now they have to have, I believe, the on on their person camera. Mm-hmm. I think that was a new law that was passed from the gentleman. I, I see some merit in that. I do. Hurt and Ferguson, yeah. And... Um, you know, regardless of what the guy did in Ferguson, um, you know, all that stuff that happened in Ferguson wasn't really necessary. I know that people were really upset, and that was the way to get attention. And as you said, a lot of people just go out for the hell of it. Um, I know that it was really funny to watch some of the people's parents coming out to get their kids So um, that were out there riding, you know, because they were being silly. But... Uh, you know, all I can say is just be aware of your surroundings, and that's my whole take on it, and always go 
um, by your instincts. I, I mean, I'm very No, there's one thing you didn't touch on, instinct. and that is the two What's Mississippi that? cops that were executed. One what cop happened? stops oh, a wait, car. Wait, wait, I don't want to hear about that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In Mississippi. What happened with that? Well, one cop stops a car, and he calls for a backup. And this new rookie cop, he happens to be black. He's excited about being a cop. He's been on the job one year. He, he's a backup. He comes there, and when the two of them together, these four guys shoot and kill both of them right on the spot. Then they take their police car and get away. Here's what angers me, and I think it angers every policeman. Both of those two, those suspects had been a, charged and convicted and arraigned on dangerous uh, felony charges of weapons. What are they doing out in the street? That's your judicial system. They let these mm-hmm. people go back out there and do more crimes. That mm-hmm. gets us very angry. And the politicians, you know, we're overcrowded, this and that. Those cops would be able to be alive today if those guys had still been detained and incarcerated. But no, they mm-hmm. let them out to kill again. That story's been told over and over and over. Yeah, you know what happened with the gentleman they found um, hung in the tree in the in the bayou. Um, the the gentleman. I don't know anything about that found. one. I haven't yeah, heard anything a, about it. There was a guy that they found, and I have to research this. Um, they found him, um, and he had been dragged from his home, and he had been found dead, hung in the woods um, mm-hmm. in the bayou. I have to find that out about reason? that. Um, yeah, recently, just a little bit ago, not too long ago. Yeah. But, you know, I want to say to everyone listening today that um, if you missed the beginning of the show, you should really listen to it. It's really interesting. Um, listen to it in its entirety um, from the beginning. And also, being that it's Memorial Day, I want to say to everyone, don't drink and drive, please. Um, it's really important that you don't, and plus you don't want to end up in end up in, in jail for the night or whatever, but you don't want to hurt anyone either, and you don't definitely don't want to hurt yourself. And, um, you know, be careful. Um, be aware of your surroundings at all times, and also honor all those that, are, that served you well um, that are here and gone. Um, and, you know, I think it's important for us to remember what, um, you know, we need to remind ourselves of all the great sacrifices that everybody, both men and women, in armed for armed services, whatever, military, police, whatever, have served for yeah, us all and given their lives. Yeah, all absolutely. Corrections officers, it doesn't matter. When you put on that badge mm-hmm. to go to work doing that job, yep. It's, it, it, you used to say it's a thankless job, but no, you get some thank, uh, thanks out of it, but today it's, more and more with the climate today, it's more dangerous than ever. Like I say, you know, yep. it's, you don't want the police community itself to all of a sudden fear so much that they won't do their job. That's what you don't want. No, I know. That's a, oh, oh, that's what I was going to say. Now what they're doing um, in my area is they're traveling in pairs. When one person Absolutely. pulls someone over, they call for someone else to be there because – like you said, people are assaulting and killing and Well, you just don't know when you're one person, you don't have backup. I remember I was a rookie, and I got a call to a house, uh, domestic, and I was a rookie. I mean, I mean, you know, two weeks on the job, 
And they tried something new in Boston. It was the first time ever that they put one man in a car. They figured they, they could use more cars and get people spread out like that. So I volunteered for the one man in the car. Inexperienced, a couple of weeks on the job. I go to this house. I go up and I go into the, uh, the home, and there's this big man. He's probably in his 60s, but he's huge. And he's got this huge crucifix, a Greek Orthodox crucifix, in his hand like a weapon, like he's going to kill his wife. And I walk in. I don't reach for my gun. I'm about 135, 140 pounds. And I say, hold it, hold it, please, don't do that. And he looks at me startled. And he's getting ready, coming at me, and he's going to hit me with it. He would have split my head right down the middle. I said, wait a minute, wait a minute. That's a beautiful cross. I don't know why I did this. I have no idea on this earth today why I did this. Let me see that. And I grabbed the cross. I had him bring it down. I kissed it. Let me see the bottom. And I kissed the bottom. And he started telling me about the cross, what it stood for. And we sat down, and we, they fixed me a cup of tea, and the door so came open. So you de-escalated the situation. five cops come running in. What are you, crazy? This guy could have killed you. I, I, mm-hmm. And it was all over. I crashed. I, mean, I couldn't believe it. I you never, know, even, you never, I never even took my gun out. And if I shot he, and killed him, I would have been justified. Yeah, see, you never know if somebody's either off on their meds, or mental or something really tragic has happened, like they've either, either lost a wife or a family or a husband or someone has died. And they want or... you to kill them because they can't commit suicide. They want you to do it for them. Exactly. Yep. Exactly. I think some people are like that, but I also want to say that there are some people that really don't know what they're doing. Um, oh, and. Yeah. It's being ignored, and this is really important. If you are in a situation, guys, where you have somebody around you that's acting a little bit off, it's like not feeling right, and it's more than once it's happening, you know, don't reach out for help um, to somebody, and you can do it very confidential, confidentially. Um, you know, I'm a victim of... Um, a stalking situation. So I know what stalking um uh, is really like and I know what it feels like to be hunted. Um I mean, basically I said in an interview that somebody did with me and I I don't know how it got in the newspaper but I said I felt like I was in my home waiting for a tidal wave to hit it. Um you know, it's a very frightening thing to be on the other end of somebody that is trying to intimidate you and scare you. And, you know, I did the right thing. I sought out the right things to do, and the situation was justifiably handled. But um, the scary part is the when the restraining order or the criminal protective order or whatever runs out and um, the person's still on the loose and they have a vendetta out against you. And... That's the scary part. So that's what I'm saying, guys. Just be very careful. Um, always be aware of your surroundings. Um, I'm really careful now when I go out um, anywhere, even if it's to go out to eat, even if it's to go out to the market. Always look around you. Be aware of your surroundings. Look where the exits and entrances are. I mean, I feel like my heart went out for all the people in Paris and all the people in France that got caught markets and then the people that got caught oh, yeah, in the factories yeah. and stuff I mean that was just so stupid and the thing is we don't think that we think oh here we're going to just go about our day and we're going to have a really nice day normal I'm going to go out to the market get some things come home 
make dinner or just relax, chill. You know, you may never come home. You don't know. And I'm not saying this to scare people. I'm saying this because I just think that it's really important we are now really aware. And we don't have to live in fear. That's the thing I want to say. Don't live in fear. Don't go, oh, my God, you know, something bad's going to happen. I don't draw that in. It's just I have in the back of my mind always at all times I'm aware. Aware of my surroundings. And I think children need to be that instilled in them and parents really need to you know, talk to their kids about that. You know, if you um, have a friend that's acting a little strange or talking about killing themselves and stuff, I don't even want to get into that part of it, but I think that if you have a friend talking about killing themselves and suicide, please talk to an adult. If there are any parents or young adults listening to this show, please talk to an adult or somebody that you trust. That you trust. Well, that's the walk, right? I always say ask for help. Don't be afraid to ask for help. Yep. 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 I want to thank you so much for being here today. And I All know right, that we've talked know, about right. a lot of things. Pleasure. Pleasure. And, um, I'll be talking to you pretty soon anyways because you know I want to interview you. Oh, yeah. No, I definitely have a lot to share with people. And Yeah, um, we'll do that soon. Yeah, and I want to say to everyone again, it is Memorial Day weekend. Please do not drink and drive. This is like the highest weekend of accidents and fatalities on the road both uh, professionally and um, also uh, civilian-wise. So be careful um, and have fun. Make it a fun Mm -hmm. time. Enjoy your time. Um, Realize what Memorial Day is really all about. It's not just about going out and getting wasted or going out and um, whatever, you know. Um, Think about what Memorial Day really is about. It's about you know, honoring the people that made sacrifices for us to be able to be here right now. So there you go. All right, Holly, thank you. I want to say thank you very much to you. And I want to say to everyone to make sure to tune in next Wednesday um, and the following Friday. We're going to be having some really amazing shows on. Um, Next Wednesday, I have a special guest on with her book, Um, and some other things that are going on. So I want to thank you so much, Ed, for being here today again. And, uh, again, everyone listening, thank you so much for listening, um, being in the chat room, supporting Red Velvet Media. We are on Facebook as well. And we do have a lot of um, pop culture shows as well with Spencer Drake that um, I do. And uh, there's a lot of fun things coming up. And I wish you the best of luck with your... um, projects you're working on right now and I know I sound like I'm not going to talk to you again I'll probably talk to you tomorrow or something like that but anyway have a really good night and I want to say thank you so much again Ed for being here alright thank you Holly okay All right. many Bye-bye. blessings to everyone bye you've been listening to Red Velvet Media with Holly Steffi thanks for listening and tune in again next time with lucky landslots you can get lucky just about anywhere dearly beloved we are gathered here today to has anyone seen the bride and groom Sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. 
No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.